Open your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And let's consider some further examples, entries into the hall of faith that makes up this 11th chapter of Hebrews. There is a powerful, important argument contained in this chapter. And that is that those that have gone before us, that have shown their faith, ought to provoke us to have similar faith. Although most of us will never face circumstances even close to what these men faced. So it ought to be all the easier for us to maintain faith steadfast unto the end. I do not believe this morning we need much in the way of a preamble. Do you know what a preamble is? It's wandering around before you start. Just think about it. Preamble. You amble before you start. Let's leave the preamble out this morning and dive in to the 13th verse of Hebrews chapter 11. We have already covered Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and now we take up their children, grandchildren, and themselves considered together in this 13th verse. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now when it said these all died in faith, it's referring to Abraham from verse 8, it's referring to Sarah from verse 11, and the children that sprang from them in verse 12, and the Isaac and Jacob mentioned in verse 9. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. Primarily the three great patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These all died in faith. They had faith from when God called them. They had faith till the day they died. And they died in that faith. But it goes on to say that these particular men did not obtain the promises of God. These all died in faith not having received the promises. If you look at the promises God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of a multitudinous seed or of a land or of blessings among the Gentiles, if you look at that either physically, naturally, or spiritually, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not receive the promises. Naturally, we read last Sunday from Acts chapter 7 that Abraham never owned enough of Canaan to put the sole of his foot on. He didn't obtain the promises naturally. Spiritually, Jesus Christ was yet to come in our day, in the period of the New Testament, which will become important as we come to the end of this 11th chapter. Naturally or spiritually, they did not obtain the promises to the degree, in the way that we have received them. They died in faith, not having received the, not having received the promises. Though they did not have the land, though they did not meet and see and know Jesus Christ as we know Him, yet look what it says of their faith. They saw them afar off. They saw the eventual taking of Canaan after 400 years when God would deliver His nation from Egypt. They saw that. They saw heaven. They saw Jesus Christ. In fact, keeping your finger at Hebrews 11 always this morning, look at John chapter 8. And verse 56, and if you're not there, I'll read it to you. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced 
to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw the coming of Jesus Christ, though darkly, though figuratively. He saw it. And it tells us in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, having seen it, he was persuaded of it. These men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were persuaded of Canaan being their home, of Jesus Christ, of the hope of eternal glory in heaven, of blessings upon the Gentiles through their seed. They saw those things. They were persuaded of them. Remember, faith is evidence of things not seen. While they couldn't see it immediately present, they saw it afar off. It was in their minds, the mind of faith, the eye of faith, saw all these promises that God had made, and they were persuaded of them. And not only were they persuaded of them, but faith will also cause us to embrace them, to cherish them, to consider them as being important, to hold them dear. And they did hold those promises dear. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The more you see heaven, the more you see Jesus Christ, the more you'll realize this world stinks and you're a stranger and a pilgrim in it. The greater your love of God, the greater your hatred of this world. They go hand in hand. If you were in, if you had an infinite love of righteousness, you'd have an infinite hatred of wickedness. And that's the way it is with God. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. When you have an increase in love for righteousness, you'll have an increase in hatred for this world. There is no resting place. There is no comfort or happiness in this world as considered a place of sinful men. And these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, confessed willingly that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. God had said, I'll give you this land for an everlasting inheritance. They said, we're strangers and pilgrims here. All they did was set their tents, pick up their tents, move to a new location, place their tent. They were nomads. A nomad, by definition, is a group of people who own no property. They just float around raising their sheep, camels, cows, cattle, and other livestock, using the, using the fields of grass as they find them, using the wells of water as they find them or dig them but they have no final resting place. Verse 14 tells us, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. When I meet someone or when you meet someone that hates this world, that despises it, and talks in critical ways of this world, what, do those what are those people telling you? The Bible here tells us that they're saying something very plain. They're saying something plain that they seek a country. They're looking for another nation. They're looking for another city. They're looking for another country. This world has nothing for them. So they're always looking beyond this world. They're not content in this world. They are seeking something else. And that's Jesus Christ at the right hand of God and eternal glory with Him. Those that confess their strangers and pilgrims here say something very plainly. My affections are not in this world. I am not content in this world. I desire to be in glory. They say it plainly. They seek another country. And that other country is not Australia, nor is it Canada, nor is it South Africa. 
three places that men tend to think about fleeing to these days. Verse 15, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. This is a true statement here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came out of a certain country. All three of them came out of it. What country was that? Ur of the Chaldeans. You say Abraham came out of it. I know that. But when did Isaac come out of it? He came out of it in the form of Abraham's servant who went and sought a bride for Isaac from that same land because Abraham demanded that Isaac marry a wife of his own kinfolk. Where did Jacob go when he fled from the face of Esau? Back to the same country and dwelled there with Laban and married Rachel, Leah, and their two handmaids and then came back into Canaan. Truly, if they had been mindful of that country... Now, the word mindful here is not simply knowing about it, not reading the atlas and finding out about this country, but having an affection toward it, having a mind in the direction of a certain thing, having a mind bent with affection or longing for that country. If they had had affection toward Ur of the Chaldeans, from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. I mean, God did not chain them to the land of Canaan. They could have returned. What made the difference? Why did they leave home, family, common language, business, all of that to go to Canaan? And why did they stay in Canaan? Why didn't they go back? What made the difference? Faith changed their affections. They were not mindful of that. They forgot about it. They did not sit and dwell on what they were missing by not being in the Ur of the Chaldeans. Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Jesus Christ has called us to come out of Ur of the Chaldeans as far as coming out of this world and not touching the unclean things of this world and being separate from it. Sometimes He calls us to move. Some of you have moved. He calls us to leave family and friends and move to seek His kingdom, His church, His righteousness, His communion, the fellowship of His saints first in our lives. And I hope that you have faith like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means you are not mindful of what you left. God is my witness. I am not mindful of what I left in Michigan except to be mindful that I left a mess. And to be thankful to God, I'm in South Carolina. I could tell you the negative things about living in Michigan. The unhappiness, the unfulfilled life. I'm happy to be here in South Carolina. My mind is in Greenville. It's not in Detroit. It doesn't entertain Michigan National Bank. Why, one visit a year ago was enough to remind me that my mind was in the right place. I loved it when I was in it. But after I came out of it, by the call of God, I am not mindful of it. Some of you have moved. 
I hope you're not mindful of it. That is history. Your mind should be where you're at today if where you are at today is the place where God has called you to be. I read in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, Jesus said unto him, to a man that was going to follow him, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now that's a hard line, isn't it? But that's what Jesus Christ said. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Listen, if you've made your move here to Greenville, or you've left family and friends, or you've left something else, some business, some job for the cause of Christ and for the sake of this church, if you look back, <coughs> if you're mindful of what you left, if you think about it, if you reflect on it, if you wonder, what would it have been like if I didn't? I wish I could go back. Oh, it would have been nice back there. We left so many good things. Don't be mindful of it. You're not fit for the kingdom of God if you do that. You say, I've done it then repent of it and ask God for mercy and get your mind in the right place. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at Abraham didn't even know where he was going. He went to a place where he owned no property. He went to a place where he suffered persecution. He had kings chasing him around. He had kings filling his wells so they had to dig them out again. It was a trouble. It was a place of trouble. He had cities burned up by the judgment of God because of their gross wickedness. And he left a place of comfort and security where he had lived with his own family. But he gave up his mind for that. He didn't think about it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not go back. And Abraham made his servant swear, you will not take my son back to Ur of the Chaldees. Look at Genesis chapter 24. I, I need to show you this. Genesis chapter 24. The poor servant. I can't read the whole passage, but remember... Abraham called his servant and said, My son Isaac needs a wife. The man's 40 years old. He needs a woman. There aren't any women around here. I'm not going to let him marry the women he's fallen in love with these last 18 times. I've cut him off every time. He has to marry a woman from our home country. So he gets his servant and he swears, Go back and get me a wife for Isaac from my kinfolk. And the servant starts to think about uh, the possibilities of what could happen when he gets back there. What if? The woman doesn't want to leave her family. Genesis chapter 24, verse 5, the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? Listen, listen to what's happening here. The servant says, What if the woman will not come? Should I take Isaac to her? Let's see if Abraham has a definite opinion on this matter. Verse 6, And Abraham said unto him, Beware thou that thou bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and which spake unto me and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under Abraham's thigh and agreed to that commitment. Beware 
Don't you dare take my son Isaac back into that land. Now that is a father. And you say, well, his son was still of age. He was under the age of accountability. That son was 40 years old. That son was 40 years old. And Abraham's not talking to his son. He's not involved in the discussion. Abraham's saying, beware, don't you dare take my son back to that land. He is going to stay here because this is where God has called our family. Abraham was a man who commanded his household in the way of the Lord. I love a man with that kind of faith and courage. But notice, he didn't have a mind to go back to Ur of the Chaldeans. Hebrews chapter 11. They could have returned. God isn't forcing you to be here this morning. Some of you, the, the uh, travel agencies will be working tomorrow. Tickets may be purchased. You may be, go back to where your mind is. The Bible, however, tells us to set our affection on things above and not on things on the earth. I hope that you're mindful that you've made the right decision. And to look back is to mean you're not fit for the hall of faith. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. That is what the Word of God teaches. Verse 16, But now they desire a better country that isn't heavenly. And that isn't Australia. It isn't South Africa. It isn't Canada. Those countries may be nice. They may have beautiful geography. They may have greater freedom than our nation does in some respects. They're not heavenly. The heavenly country is heaven itself. The city that we read about in verse 10. For Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham didn't want to go back to Ur. Isaac didn't want to go back to Ur. Jacob made sure he left Ur because they desired a better country that is an heavenly country. Heaven itself. That is where their hope was. And remember, the only hope of eternal life in heaven is based on your faith and not looking back. If you don't have faith and you look back, you're more mindful of the things in this world. You have no evidence. You have a heavenly country waiting for you. God said, Canaan is the place I want you to float around as nomads with your tents and tabernacles. They said, we'll stay here in Canaan because we're seeking that heavenly country, the fulfillment of the promises of God in their entirety, that is heaven. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now I find this little, it's not in parentheses, but it's just as good. It's inside colons. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. See, God is ashamed of most of those that take His name. God is ashamed of most of His children because they do not live like His children. They do not reverence their father and serve their father as obedient children. What is the basis for God being proud of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They left things in this world and didn't look back. They left things in this world and didn't look back because they sought a heavenly country. You know, do you understand how despicable it must be in the mind of God for us to be enamored with things in this world compared to Him? 
Some of you men that were possessive as boyfriends in high school, did you ever cast your attention on some girl and favor her with some of your attention, and then you find her going out with or dating or going steady with some pimp squeak that didn't have half the brains, brawn, or otherwise that you had? What did that do to your ego? You couldn't believe it. What a fool. She's missing me. It may be pitiful since you're looking at yourself, but think about God. God does have the world's most infinite ego. That is a desire to please himself. He knows he's of infinite attributes from whichever attribute you consider. And then here we are. He's regenerated us in this world. He's given us faith and hope. He's given us promises. He's made us partakers of the divine nature. And we get enamored with a job so that it chokes out our lives. A job? Can you imagine God in his mind? A job? They don't have time for my worship because of a job? They don't have time for devotions with their children because of boy? They don't have time to read their Bible because of hunting? Can you imagine what must go through his mind? What kind of a comparison is there between a job and the glory of Almighty God? There is no comparison. It's ridiculous to put them in the same sentence. Well, when God finds men, and there have been few of them, brethren, few. Do you remember the three assumptions of faith? There have been few that have wholeheartedly tried to make every decision, plan their time because of what God said in his word. Do you remember that? The, the assumption that I tried to leave with you is that we assume that God is in heaven, something like what the Bible describes him to be. And I mean that foolishly, because he's exactly as the Bible describes him to be. And we live accordingly. That's the only assumption of faith that pleases God. Remember, verse 6 of this chapter tells us without faith it is impossible to please him. And then we go off and diligently seek other things, a promotion, a bigger house, more fa fancier cars, a, f a close family. We wouldn't want to offend our family, and so we sacrifice righteousness with God. We compromise. We may have compromised, or we may presently be compromising righteousness in our homes, what we watch on the television, what we allow our children to do, what we do when it comes to Christmas and other issues that cause divisions among families. We're setting some mere man higher than God. But when we leave all that and say, I don't even think about it. I'm not mindful of it. I couldn't care less. We don't even look back. The Bible tells us right here, wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. I want my relationship with God to be such that He's not ashamed to be called my God. I want to be the God of Jonathan Crosby. Isn't that a great statement? I want to be the God of Jonathan Crosby. What about you? Don't be mindful of what you've left. Don't be mindful of what you're missing. Don't let your feet slip, as did David once when he was envious at the prosperity of the wicked. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Brethren, this is no game. There's no entertainment this morning. It's pure, simplistic, basic Christianity. 
Is God your all in all? Is everything you've left, everything that could entice you in this world, nothing? Do you confess that you're a stranger and a pilgrim here? Do you declare plainly that this world is nothing for you? There's something far better. You show no attachment or, or susceptibility or vulnerability to this world. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What the Lord commands of us in these verses is not for us to be regenerated and become a child of God in that sense. What the Lord expects of us here is to become a practical child of God by living like we are God's children where He as our Father is not ashamed to be our Father. But in order for that exalted, most blessed position in this world, we've got to leave and forsake and change our minds. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. I fear that in this congregation there are some, there may be many, who have not fully given themselves over to the mind of Christ and submitted themselves to Him and to His calling in their lives. You're still holding on to things in your life, whatever those things might be. Personal habits, family habits, family itself, a job, the misuse of your time, the misuse of your finances, the lack of training your children properly, Christmas, any idol that you can think of, if you haven't left them, God's ashamed to be called your God. Because if He is God like the Bible describes, how can anything in this world ever attract us away from Him? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, For He hath prepared for them a city. If you put what's in colons in parentheses, it's easier to follow. Verse 16 may read, But now they desire a better country, that is... And heavenly, for he hath prepared for them a city. They are seeking that city from verse 10 that God prepared for them. Heaven itself. But stuck in there is that little statement, wherefore he's not ashamed to be called their God. Can you imagine? Brethren, remember the, the worst of the assumptions? The worst of the assumptions of faith is to say there is a God in heaven. And then not live sold out for it. Guess what? Not only do you miss full satisfaction from sin, because if you're going to get full satisfaction from sin, brethren, give yourselves to it. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. If you're going to sin, do it. But do it well. Do it thoroughly. Bury yourself in it. At least then you'll have some satisfaction like the wild ass. Remember, that's more consistent like the wild ass who seeks out the green grass. Go feed your bellies, you belly worshipers. But if that, that is not the worst assumption. The worst assumption 
is to claim that you're living for God, to claim that you believe He is, and He is a rewarder, and then to live partially in sin. That's the worst of all cases. You're not satisfied in the flesh, and God's ashamed to be called your God. What a mess. Isn't, isn't that a mess? God's ashamed to be called your God, and your flesh is not happy. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He will become a father to us and we will be his sons if we separate and touch not the unclean thing and if we will not be mindful of those things we have left and those things we should leave. Verse 17 through verse 19 describes another event in the life of Abraham by which he illustrates his faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. God does try men. Look at James chapter 1. It's only two pages to the right if you've got a wide margin Bible. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Temptation in James chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 is said very carefully, very specifically, not to be the result of God's dealings with us. Temptation is what springs from an evil heart that loves every form of sin that God will allow it, permit it to participate in. Sin springs from the lust in our hearts. And notice, in order to guard against fatalistic tendencies, the apostle says in verse 16, do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not make a mistake on this point. Sin is never the result of God. It cannot be, because God cannot be tempted with sin, neither tempteth he any man. There is nothing within God at which sin can find a lodging place. His heart is against it all. His heart hates it. He's of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, the Bible tells us. And yet... God does tempt. God tempted Abraham. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. That's the word used in Genesis 22, 1. God tempted Abraham by calling on him to offer his son Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. Now the temptation there was not God putting an evil desire in the heart of Abraham. Abraham had every evil desire that needed to be there. God never has to put anything there. When the Bible says the heart of the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It means God doesn't have to infuse evil lust. It's already there. All He would ever have to do is just take away His gracious restraint. You'd do anything. But how did He tempt Abraham? He tempted Abraham by creating an opportunity where Abraham could have sinned. He put no lust in his heart. He simply gave him a test whereby Abraham was going to have to exert his new man and the strength he had by faith to overcome it. Here was an opportunity where Abraham could have thrown a temper tantrum, thrown a fit, and said, God, you're crazy. I mean, you've promised me that it's through Isaac that I'm to have these great blessings. I can't, I can't put him to death. I can't offer him as a sacrifice. He would have flunked the test and it would have been sin. It was a trial. It was a temptation in giving him an opportunity to have committed sin, which would have sprung from his own lust 
of not believing God sufficiently. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me give you another witness on the point that God does tempt. But the only way He tempts is He sometimes allows or brings about opportunities or situations where we might sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Many of you are familiar with this verse, but let's look at a point we don't usually draw from it. There hath no temptation taken you, <coughs> but such as is <clears throat> common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Who brings the temptation in 1 Corinthians 10.13? God Himself. Who draws the line on the temptation that it will not be too much for you? God Himself. Who makes the way of escape that you may be able to bear it? God Himself. And the temptations God brings, the temptations God brings are common to man. They may be in different areas, but the degree to which we are tempted is common. There is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. Now Abraham, according to Hebrews chapter 11, was tempted, was tried. Genesis 22 and verse 1 is where the word tempted is used. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. If you've watched the Hollywood movie called The Ten Commandments, when God calls on Abraham to offer up his son Isaac, what does Abraham do? He goes out in the woods and he throws a temper tantrum. He screams at God. How can you do this? But when you... That's Hollywood for you. Even when they try to make something biblical they can't read. If you read the Bible in Genesis chapter 22, we read that early in the morning, he rose up, saddled his ass, took Isaac, and headed for Mount Moriah. Early in the morning. There is no temper tantrum out in the woods. By faith, when he was tried, he offered up Isaac. He went to it immediately. Now, it was a, it was a trip of several days. But he immediately went to that trip and took Isaac to Mount Moriah. Verse 17, And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. That only begotten son there does not mean that's the only son he had, nor the only son that he begot. It was a specially begotten son because it was the only son Sarah had. Abraham already had another son. What was his name? Ishmael. Only begotten. Specially begotten. Only begotten in a particular way. The only one Sarah ever gave birth to was Isaac. And God had told Abraham numerous times, in Isaac shall thy seed be called, and I'm going to bless you through the descendants, through the seed, both, of Isaac. Now Abraham knew all the promises were in Isaac. How could he kill Isaac? But he went and offered him up anyway. The very son that God had promised that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Verse 18, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. The very son Abraham was sure he needed, God was asking him to put to death. Verse 19, now how did Abraham reason by faith? Accounting 
that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham looked at the commandment of God. I know God has said Isaac is going to be the son by whom I'm going to obtain these blessings. Now, if God is telling me to kill Isaac, I know that if I kill him, God is going to do something supernatural again. I mean, after all, I got him from the dead in the first place. I was dead when he was born. Sarah's womb was dead when he was born. I can get him from the dead again, accounting that God was able. Remember from Romans chapter 4? Faith is fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Faith rests on the ability of God to perform whatever God has said and does not doubt that regardless of the request. Regardless of how bizarre what God calls on us to do may be. When I teach on child training, much of what is to be said grates against our nerves because we have read and heard and thought too much in the way of this world. But when God tells us how we are to train our children, He gives us the emphasis in His Word on the authority of the Father in the home over the children. There should be no doubting about whether it will work or not. And yet, how many doubt? Well, if I'm that severe, if I'm that authoritarian, it's not going to work because I've read... Oh, there you go. Because you read? Well, that's because I considered. And Abraham did not consider. If God said the rod is the way, not one of the ways, but the way to train a child out of foolishness, then that is the way that should be practiced. To consider any other way is to be lacking in faith and to guarantee without supernatural intervention the failure of your children. Women, when God tells you that your happiest most successful and complete fulfillment in this world married to a man will be by full submission and obedience, don't consider anything else you've read or heard or thought. Because the promise of God stands. A fulfilled woman is a woman that will obey and submit to her husband and make him first. She'll be honored and exalted. Her husband and children will rise up and call her blessed and she shall be praised. Proverbs chapter 31. That's the promise of God. Now God had promised Abraham and Isaac shall thy seed be called. And now he's saying kill Isaac. Abraham said, I don't know what God has in mind, but I'm going to kill him anyway because God will, if God needs to, he'll raise him from the dead. Now that's a man of faith. Do we have as much faith in some of these pitifully small areas that I just mentioned by example? I know what goes through your minds. Listen, we have more evil influence today because the evil influence is more readily available in our homes than ever before. That runs through your mind. But God calls on us to obey His Word in order to obtain His promises. <coughs> when it comes to church judgment, we sometimes think, well, maybe we ought to show more mercy. Maybe we ought not to exclude for this offense. Maybe we could overlook this one time. Maybe we could do this. Maybe we could do that. Listen, it doesn't work. God already told us how to do it. Are we going to do it anyway? There isn't anything more to Christianity than this right here. There isn't anything more to Christianity than what God had said. We believe it regardless of what complications or problems we see in our minds about what He's required. Accounting that God was able to raise Him 
from the dead. From whence also he received him in a figure. In his mind, he did receive Isaac from the dead. Because in his mind, he was already dead. I mean, he had the boy tied up, laid across the wood. The fire was laying there beside the altar, and the knife was overhead, and he was just about to plunge it down into Isaac. He was dead. Abraham had already made the decision. God is able to raise him from the dead. Here we go. And then he heard his name called. That would have been comforting. Abraham, Abraham, don't you kill Isaac. Now I know that you fear me. And there's the trial. He passed the trial. God will bring some complicated, problematic messes into our lives sometimes. But usually we know the word of God. The problem is not usually that we don't know what we ought to do. The problem is we think too much about alternatives. God has said what to do. I, I don't worry so much that you people don't know enough. I worry too much that your hearts are deceitful and that the world has influenced you not to do what you know. Faith does what God has said regardless of the problematic, difficult circumstances God may bring our way. Now, this was problematic. Now, wait a minute. If I kill Isaac, God can't keep his promise. Well, I need to help. I mean, I can't do this. God won't be able to keep his promises. Abraham simply reasoned God will raise him from the dead because God's made a promise that the blessings will come through Isaac. Obviously, I will be unable to kill Isaac permanently. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac. Now we move down a generation. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, when I studied this verse, when I thought about it, when I thought how you might read this verse, you say, how could Isaac do it by faith? Remember what happened to poor Isaac? Jacob and Esau changed places with him and the wrong blessings were given. But remember, why is this verse here? As far as Isaac knew, to whom did he give the greater blessing? Did he do it in sincerity? When Isaac gave his blessing, he did it as sincerely as Isaac ever did anything. This verse tells us that. And when you go back and read the account, he did it sincerely. He did it by faith. As far as he knew, he was giving the blessing the way he should have. He did it by faith. He could not have known or remembered that Jacob was to receive the blessing and then have given it to Esau by faith. <laughs> That'd be impossible. That'd be doing, that'd be by rebellion, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. When Isaac blessed Jacob and gave him Esau's blessing, he was doing it sincerely to the best of his knowledge at that time. <clears throat> the point is this, Isaac, when he put out his hands on the head of his sons and spoke of things to come that God gave to him by inspiration, blessings that God gave him, he believed that what he spoke concerning things to come would definitely come to pass. And I turn you back to the first verse of this chapter. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Abraham, I mean, Isaac, as he laid his hands there and spoke of Jacob rising up over his brethren and his brethren serving him, he spoke, he didn't know it was Jacob at the time. He was simply giving a blessing. He was blessing as the way, the way God led him to bless. 
and it was the substance of things hoped for. He believed it. He had every confidence that what he was saying would come to pass. So much so was that confidence that when Esau came in later and told his father Isaac that Jacob had deceived him, he said, I've already given him the blessing and I cannot take it back. He believed it fully that what he had said would come to pass and it would come to pass on the man that was under his hands. And so he gave Esau a very limited blessing. But he did it by faith. Even though it was in the future, even though his two boys were there and they showed none of this advantage that Jacob would have over Esau at the time, Isaac believed it concerning things to come. Verse 21. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Jacob had twelve sons. Levi was to be taken out to be the tribe of priests. That left how many? Eleven. If you take out Joseph, who was living in Egypt, how many did you have? Ten. God replaced Joseph with his two children. Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh was the firstborn, and Ephraim was the secondborn. And I'm not turning into the passage because we don't need to read it. I'll just tell you what takes place back there in Genesis 45. Jacob told Joseph, your two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, will be my sons. Twelve sons for the priests left eleven. Taking Joseph out left ten. And then Joseph's two sons were put in, Manasseh the firstborn and Ephraim the secondborn. And Joseph came to Jacob on his deathbed. He mustered the strength to sit up on the edge of his bed. And according to this text, we read that he worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. You can just imagine him holding himself up on his crutch or cane there on the edge of his bed. And Joseph brings his two sons forward. Manasseh, on Joseph's left side, describes it very carefully, which would be Jacob's right hand, because that was the firstborn, and then Ephraim was the secondborn, Joseph guided toward Jacob's left hand because he was sure Manasseh would receive the greater blessing. And then Jacob blesses the two sons. And he does this. He crosses his hands, puts his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh, reversed the order as Joseph understood. And oh, Joseph tried to correct his father Jacob. There in Genesis 45 and Jacob reasserted himself, saying, this is the way God intends for this blessing to be. Now, God did not give Isaac that ability. Isaac did not know when he gave the great blessing that he was giving it to Jacob and not Esau. So there's one situation. Jacob did know. Jacob's eyes were dim. Joseph knew he couldn't see, so Joseph guided them the right way. And then he crossed his hands. God told him how the blessings were, be, were to be given. Either way, Isaac and Jacob, when they blessed, believed what they were doing. Even though they, I mean, these were little boys. It says they both were between Joseph's knees when he pushed them out to Jacob. Now, you don't get grown men, two men between your knees. They were boys. And he was sitting down when he put his hands on their head. And he blessed them, but by faith, it was the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. While he couldn't see that Ephraim was going to be greater than Manasseh, he promised 
that it would be so. Verse 21 tells us by faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Regardless of the fact that they were down in Egypt, a foreign nation, he believed that God would bless those sons, that there would be a day when there would be 12 tribes of Israel and Manasseh and Ephraim would be two of them. Verse 22, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Joseph lived to be 110 years of age in Egypt. He died in Egypt. But just before he died, he said, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this place and take you into the land which he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers. And when you go, take my bones with you. Now that's faith. That's faith. Even though I'm going to die, even though it's going to be after my decease, and I'll be in heaven, I'll be with God, my spirit will have left this world, take my bones with you, because I'm sure God will visit you according to His promise and take you into the land of Canaan. And so we read about the embalming of Joseph. Remember, he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. He was embalmed. His body was kept there in Egypt, and they did take it into Canaan. The Bible tells us that. It was a couple, a few months ago when I left a newspaper article on the back table about the bones of Joseph. Remember that some archaeologist had spent all his life digging bones up in Egypt and he had finally found the bones of Joseph. Could we have saved that poor man a lot of wasted effort? Where were the bones of Joseph? In Canaan. They weren't in Egypt. How pitiful when you don't believe the Word of God. Now that's a lack of faith. Faith tells us Joseph's bones are somewhere in the dust of Canaan because they were carried there. He had the substance of things hoped for. He was sure there would be the land of Canaan in the possession of the Israelites, and that's where he wanted his bones. Verse 23, by faith Moses. Now this is a passive construction. Moses isn't the one exercising faith in this verse. It's the parents of Moses. By faith Moses when he was born, was hid. See, it's not Moses hiding. It's Moses was hid. The parents are the ones acting in this verse. They're the ones that had the faith. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Come back to Exodus chapter 2 and let's see the faith of this man and his wife. If you remember your Old Testament, you'll recall that after Joseph died, the children of Israel began to multiply exceedingly, sort of like rabbits. I mean, they went down 75 souls into Egypt and they came out 600,000 men of war a hundred, let's see, 215 years later. A tremendous multitude. They multiplied exceedingly because God was with them. Well, they were multiplying so fast, according to chapter 1, that Pharaoh looked out and saw this great number increasing in the suburbs. And he said, if we ever have a war, the Jews are going to side with our enemies and they're going to overthrow us and they'll have the land of Egypt. That made sense. That could have taken place. And so he put them under hard bondage to make their lives bitter, to try to slow down their uh, recreation at home that was resulting in all the children. And also, he sent the midwives to kill Boy, babies. 
And we read about that in verses 15 through 22 of chapter 1. When Pharaoh, in verse 16, commanded the midwives, saying, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Let me run a rabbit for 60 seconds. One day, someday, I have faith and hope of things not seen. I'm going to preach a sermon entitled The Bible and Physical Health. Here's a verse that we'll make reference to. How did they give birth in Exodus chapter 1? On stools. What is the most progressive way to give birth today that's the, only, that's the main way used in Europe and the most progressive way today for those who study childbirth? On a stool. Like I've asked you men before, could you have a bowel movement standing on your head in the corner? It's the most basic way to give birth is to be on a stool. They used it in the Bible time. If we'd read the Bible, there's a lot of wisdom in it. Even as early as Exodus chapter 1, we have never progressed beyond the stools. You know how women have had children for the last 50 years in this nation? Tilt them at a 45 degree angle upside down so the doctor does not have to get a sore back. Put their feet in stirrups and put them at a 45 degree angle up so you can put the bright spotlights on her and make it convenient for the doctor. Listen, that's ignorance, not wisdom. That's ignorance. God has created something called gravity. Why do you want to call on a woman to give birth to a baby upside down? Let gravity help it, as in the illustration I just gave you men. You understand it well. I love the Word of God. If we'd read it all, there's a lot of wisdom there. Pharaoh said, If it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Let the girls live. We could use them. But kill the boy babies. And so we have in chapter 2, a man from the tribe of Levi, that's the tribe that Moses came from, with his wife who had to make a decision. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, There went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Acts chapter 7 tells us that he was exceedingly fair. Moses was one super-looking baby. Goodly child, exceeding fair, according to Acts chapter 7. That was the first motive for Moses' mother not to put him to death. Obviously, the mother is going to have a physical, emotional attachment to the child she gives birth to. She gives birth to this baby. He's exceeding fair. He's a goodly child. She hears the little rascal cry. She looks at him. She's just carried him for nine months. How in the world could she put him to death? The first motive was her emotional, natural attachment to that child. This text tells us, and so does Hebrews 11 and verse 23, when it says, because... They saw he was a proper child. But beyond that natural attachment, what was the reason for them going against the king's commandment? They knew they were committing a capital crime. What caused them to go against the king's commandment? You say, how do you know it was a capital crime? Listen, brethren, in those days, every crime was a capital crime of something like this. Listen, when, when you had your head cut off for not smiling in his court... And that was a capital crime. Things were different 
than they are nowadays. She hit him three months. Now, for isn't that doesn't that make sense? Can any of you women and fathers relate to three months? For the first three months, a baby sleeps most of the time. If you feed it all that it can handle, it will sleep most of the time. Seldom does it burst into a screaming cry in the first three months. But as we found out in recent weeks, after three months, it becomes impossible to hide them. And if Jonathan and Teresa were here this morning, I'd make mention specifically of Olivia. Now think about the practical ramifications. For three months, a baby will eat and sleep, eat and sleep. If the mother is right there to nurse it, whenever it wakes up and whenever it shows the least bit of discontent. But after three months, where do you hide a baby like Olivia? I mean, Pharaoh's soldiers could have heard that one a half mile away. Because after three months, they do have lungs and they do use them. And notice this in Scripture, verse 3. And when she could not longer hide him, her, the crying of Moses was getting just too loud and it was too obvious. She could no longer keep him at home without people around that home knowing. When she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. By faith. By faith. First of all, there's the attachment to that child. And that's godly. Nothing ungodly about that. Why, even the pagans have attachment to their children in many cases. Even animals have attachment to their young. That's why God destroyed the seven nations of Canaan. What was unnatural about their nation when it came to children? They offered them in the fire to Molech and to other gods. They burned their children. That is unnatural. That, those nations were so unnatural. They were sodomites, lesbians, bestiality, all sorts of gross sexual crimes, and they burned their children in sacrifice. That's why God utterly destroyed them, and He tells us that is the reason why He sent a nation in there to utterly destroy those seven nations. First of all, the attachment to the child. Second of all, it was by faith that gave them courage against the king. Do you remember the words this morning from Psalm 118, verse 6? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Jesus said, Fear not them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. That's God. The fear of God should be so much greater than the fear of man that God's commandment should quickly supersede any commandment of a king. The Bible says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Romans chapter 13. The Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 2, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Was this an ordinance of man? Was it the ordinance of a king? Was Pharaoh king by the ordinance of God? Should the parents of Moses have been subject to that ordinance and to that king? I hope our government never asks for the killing of your children with the enthusiastic response I'm getting from your heads. Should Moses' parents have obeyed the king? Not a qu there shouldn't be a question in your mind 
Because notice, and I'm keeping my fingers in both places, Hebrews 11.23, by faith Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's commandment. The Bible says, fear the king. But the Bible also says that faith will supersede that fear by fearing God. And when a king makes a decree such as taking human life unjustly, you are to obey God rather than the king. The apostles did that when it came to preaching. We ought to obey God rather than men. And Moses' parents did it when it came to killing their young boy Moses. So they did it by faith. They were, they were courageous against the commandment of the king. Now in the context, I want to show you some further courage and faith. And that's in chapter 1. Now we have two Egyptian midwives who serve the Hebrew women. That's why they're called Hebrew midwives. If you look at their names and you read the Bible at all, you know those names aren't Jewish. Those names are Egyptian. As we read them in verse 15. Now Pharaoh told those midwives that they were to kill all the boy babies and let the girl babies live. Look at verse 17 of Exodus chapter 1. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. Is there any command in Scripture? There may be some. But as a category, are there many commands in Scripture more exalted than obeying the king? I mean the king is the ultimate authority in this world. And I qualify that by saying in this world. <laughs> because there is a God in heaven who has authority above the king. And these midwives did not obey as the king commanded them because they feared God. They had faith in God that they ought to do what God said and not what the king of Egypt said. Now, that takes courage. We can't even imagine it today, can we? You know, if I was to say, what if President Reagan asked you to do something and you decided not to do it? I mean, big deal, right? I mean that from a, from a practical standpoint. What's President Reagan going to do to you? Put you in some white-collar prison someplace where you can golf eight hours a day, watch TV, and take up a new skill? What's he going to do to you? Nothing happens anymore. I mean, in these times, it was a fearful thing to disobey the king and to fall under the wrath of the king. I mean, the Bible says the wrath of a king is as messengers of death when you read the book of Proverbs. The midwives feared God, so they didn't do it. So what did the king of Egypt do? He called them in. The king of Egypt called for the midwives, verse 18, and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? What have you done? You've disobeyed me. What is your excuse? Oh, they come up with a good one. Verse 19, the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. We just can't get there in time. You wouldn't believe the speed that these Hebrew women give birth to their babies. We can't get there in time. We take the fastest taxis you have. But by the time we get there, the children are already born. Well, what can he say to that? What does he know about childbirth? <laughs> Verse 20. I love this text. Listen. There are some people who are such fawning servants of authority among men 
They don't recognize there's a time to disregard the commandment of the king. Look at the next verse. Therefore. What is the therefore? Therefore. The therefore is there because the midwives refused to obey the king and because they covered themselves well. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. Here are two Egyptian women. They honor God because they fear Him. You know, having been with all those Hebrew women, I'm sure they'd heard about the God of Israel from those Hebrew women. And they feared that God. And they disobeyed the king. They saved the boy children alive. The boy children alive. And God dealt well with the midwives. When you exercise faith, and show your faith and fear of God, God will deal well with you. Delight yourself also in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. These women did it, and let's keep reading what God did for them. Verse 21, And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God. How do we know they feared God? They disobeyed the king to keep the commandment of God. That's how we know they feared God from verse 17. It came to pass because the midwives feared God that He made them houses. God blessed them. Whether that means God provided for a physical house to dwell in or these were single women that could give their lives wholly to being midwives and so He blessed them with their own families. Either way, it was the desire of a woman's heart. Either way, you cut it. God blessed these Egyptian women because of their fear and faith of Him. Faith in God will fear no one. You can't imagine anything that you'll ever face in this life as fearful as disobeying the king of Egypt. And they just disobeyed it in order to honor God. <clears throat> I will not fear what man can do unto me because the Lord is my helper. The Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. These women believed it. So did the parents of Moses. What happened to Moses' parents? What happened to the mother of Moses who did something very difficult, but after three months she couldn't keep the baby at home? She made that little ark of bulrushes, daubed it with pitch and mortar inside and without. She put her baby in it. She had to give him up. She wasn't going to kill him. She had faith in God. She had proven her faith by not killing that boy when he was born, according to the 22nd verse of chapter 1. She did not do it. What did God do for her? Well, all He did was give her back her baby and she was able to nurse and raise him and get paid for it. Now, if you want to talk about doing exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or thank, it is right here in Exodus chapter 2. And these illustrations are given to us in the New Testament as examples to provoke us to faith. You do what you ought to with your children and God will bring them back. If you doubt that, you don't have faith, and I can't offer you that promise. If you have confidence in that promise, do what God says with your children, He'll bring them back. He says He would. She stuck Moses' sister Miriam in the bulrushes beside the river. Verse 4. Verse 5, we read, The daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. Now, why did Pharaoh's daughter come down? 
Why did Pharaoh's, maiden, Pharaoh's daughter's maidens find the ark? And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. Why did Moses cry? What woman can refuse a crying baby? And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? That's a bold child. I mean, to walk right up to Pharaoh's daughter and say, I see that you found a baby. You need someone to take care of it, don't you? I'll send for one of the Hebrew women. They can nurse it for you. Good idea. Yeah, we'll do that. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me. Can you imagine the, the difficulty at submitting to this command of an Egyptian woman, Pharaoh's daughter? Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. I mean, th if this doesn't bring tears to your eyes or to your heart, you're hard. You're hard. Here's a woman that had faith in God, and God took care of her. She got paid for nursing the child she gave up for a few hours. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And that wouldn't be a bad way to go away to school if you were to live in the palace of Egypt. He would not have been taught about God in the palace of Egypt, but I'm sure that his mother had taken care of that before he left because we're going to find that when he turned 40 years of age, in his heart, he decided to go visit the children of Israel. And that will have to be next Sunday, taking up with verse 24. The child grew, she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Faith in God moves men to do exploits. Look at Daniel chapter 11, and I'm closing right now. Daniel chapter 11. For those of you who were here when we studied the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11 is primarily dedicated to the wicked actions of Antiochus Epiphanes of the Grecian Empire from Antioch of Syria as they wrought vengeance and judgment against the nation of Israel. Remember Antiochus Epiphanes came and set up an altar to Ju Jupiter Olympus. Upon the altar of God they offered swine's flesh in the temple and they set up an abomination of desolation in the temple. They took away the morning and the evening sacrifice for 2,300 days. And here's what God has to say about some men that would live in that time, men that we don't have described in the Bible, but for Daniel 11 and Hebrews 11. Otherwise, you've got to read about them in Josephus and 2 Maccabees. Daniel chapter 11, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. The men we've looked at this morning and the women, the midwives, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the parents of Moses, the mother of Moses, was strong and they did exploits. The people that do know their God, faith is believing God is and He is a rewarder. And if the Lord is on our side, what shall we fear 
What can man do unto us? The greatest men in the history of this world are men motivated by faith in God because there is nothing to deter them from being great because of their faith in God. Daniel chapter 11. I read in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 1, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. How great can you be when you're running from your own shadow? But the righteous are bold as a lion. And where does that boldness come from? But from faith in God. May God bless us to have faith like Moses' parents, like the midwives, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believing the promises of God, willing to take on the fear of man because the fear of God was greater. Let us know our God and be strong and do exploits.